out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Dream Academy, because I recently spoke to Gilbert Gabriel to find out more about life, love and poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview. And just also to say that he did more than just the Dream Academy. But you're going to find out more about that in this fascinating interview. So, after several minutes of quality, interesting chat, which we edited out, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Gilbert, it's over to you. Um, yeah, it's basically the Beatles. I mean, the Beatles was the world in the 60s. And, um, you know, it's completely irresponsible for me. Um, my career and my interests in life, basically. Right. It, 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 yeah, it, it was our internet, basically. They did everything by proxy for us. Yes. Yes. Interesting times. Because I guess I think you're just a little bit, a little bit older than me. So, did you have an, an experience of the '60s during, you know, during your childhood? Was there any of it? Did it any of it sort of come into your? Awareness. Well, it's very, it's very weird, actually. I had, like, a single parent. I seem to remember being in a place in Kent called Who, and my mother asked me to go and buy some crisps, like the off-license at the time. And I heard, I think, I want to hold your hand or something like that. And that was one of those epiphany moments at Eureka. Yes. You know, I, I just love this. I love the, the kind of harmonies that are going on. I want to kind of do this. And then from there on, it was just a question of, um, I ended up at Sexy's Grammar School in Bruton and just as you were talking about Bowie, et cetera, you know, they were part of the fabric, but it was also people like Fleetwood Mac, Green, Manalishi, and I still remember I Am The Walrus and stuff, because we go on these Sunday walks where we go and visit the girls' school. And, um, it, you know, it was an intrinsic part of our kind of education, and I took up the piano and I started always buying bits of sheet music to, like, play the Beatles songs or, you know, or whatever bands that were around at the time. Um, but I totally relate to you talking about Bowie, etc. I mean, we, you know, we kind of thought it was the end of the world when the Beatles split up, but then there was this kind of like renaissance. And subsequently, you know, working with like David Gilmore with the Pink Floyd and stuff, I realised like reading about the Pink Floyd that they went into Abbey Road after the Beatles, so they kind of took up the mantle. Yes. And, and, and then you kind of look back at kind of, you know, independent songwriters like Elson John and um, David Bowie, and you realise that they were kind of, Beatles in one person or maybe two people in that in John's case but definitely David Bowie um you know it's quite amazing how yeah did you, did you feel that you got to that age during the the kind of late 60s very early 70s when you know the Beatles broke up and then you had the death of Jimi Hendrix Jim Morrison Janis Joplin Brian Jones the year before did it feel like oh my god we're just about to go into that great period of being a sort of older teenager and, and it feels like, you know, the 60s, the party has gone rather badly here and it's it's not going to be the same again, just as we're about to have our moment. Yes, it, it feels like that. It's almost, it feels like that with the world at the moment, actually. It feels like um, three or four years ago, we didn't know how lucky we were. And now, you know, COVID, the war and uh, the kind of crash in the, in the market. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite weird how cyclic it is. But looking back at the, the, the 70s and the 80s, I guess, um, for songwriting, I mean, you know, there's Joni Mitchell and there's Carole King and, you know, there's Bowie. I mean, there's such a proliferation of amazing kind of talent. And uh, even though I love technology, you know, it's maybe some point I'll take a photograph of my studio with all the junk that I've got in it. But somehow pre-internet, people, you know, with guitars, pianos, etc., 
and their minds and creativity and lots of optimism were amazing. So somehow it feels like, even though we like to think of decades being cut into cultural kind of compartments, I, I think there was a kind of bleed really from the 60s to probably the early 70s, maybe 72, 73. You know, yes, it probably was. Did you come from a musical family? Were your parents at me? At uh, my mother um, always used to sing around the house, and then our grandmother was in one. It was one of those old um, kind of opera sort of popular opera uh, companies that did Gil and Son. I think sort of some Carlo opera or something like that. Yeah. So, so were you being slightly hot? Is it hot housed? You know, did did you have sort of musical talent that they thought this kid could go far? We need to sort of push him. Yeah. It was like, it was kind of like encouraged. It was. I mean, we had like musicals, and um, I had my own school band, and they you know they said, "Do you want some piano lessons?" At the age of ten, and um, it was all around me. And I was in the choir as well, and I sang all the parts from soprano to bass as I grew up. You know, yeah. So so it was all around me, even though there wasn't actually a conventional music course at my school. I had to go to Yeovil Technical College and sort of you know take various substances before I got myself in the right um, condition to go to Dartington College of Arts, where I studied um, classical piano. And was exposed to Steve Reich, Philip Glass, and lots of lunatics. Um, and uh, yeah, that that was the kind of blueprint I think for the Dream Academy. I kind of based the Dream Academy's vision of kind of being community based and um, interested in a lot of eclectic artists. Yes, private. Yes. So did you? Because I had a because because I've got an older brother who's seven years older. He was very into prog rock, so I was a bit obsessed because I thought he was wonderful. So I got into the you know, yes, Genesis, Wishbone, Ash, all those kind of people. Did they did they come into your consciousness? Because obviously, with that kind very, of music, very much. I mean, I went to Bristol Colston, I think, Hall in the seventh in nineteen seventy, I think, and seventy two, and I saw Genesis with Peter Gabriel, and I still remember there was a track called More for Me and. Phil Collins was on um, singing harmonies with him. I think God, what a wonderful voice he's got. And what was amazing about Genesis, it was like kind of cinema, really, because all their equipment was painted, I think, white. And um, it, when they projected things on the stage, it wasn't that typical kind of martial amps and sort of, you know, grungy metal kind of thing. It was like going to cinema or theatre. So it completely entranced me. And I loved Yes as well. Yeah, I loved all those progressive bands, really, you know, Focus, etc. cetera. Yeah. Yes, Focus, Focus. Yes, exactly. <laughs> No, he had all them. And it, but he also, bizarrely, this was kind of probably early to mid-70s, uh, but he did also have Sergeant Pepper and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And at the time, there was no kind of cultural context. And I remember being really obsessed with those two records, especially the last track on side four of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which was called Harmony, and then also Good Morning by The Beatles, which was on Sergeant Pepper. And I thought they were just the most amazing songs, lyrically, and, and you know, they were so beautifully crafted. So... Um, yeah, that had a big kind of impact, really. At the same time, I was my mum used to play radio too, so I got really into the Carpenters and Burt Backrack and stuff like that, which I still think is amazing today. So it all kind of I, fed in. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think from the age of about 10, I had a transistor radio glued to my ear permanently as, as much as I could, you know, and that, that would go on to two in the morning, like listening to Radio Caroline and all that kind of stuff, yeah. So how did you navigate that kind of interesting world of glam, you know, with Bowie and what he was doing with this slightly muso kind of prog world, which definitely wasn't sort of so um, sexually fluid and sort of experimental in that way? Uh, well, it, well it's, quite, it's quite amusing, actually. I've got a, f a friend called Wayne Ricketts that got us some tickets to go and see Mark Bowen in, I think it was either Poole or, or Bournemouth. And um, I reluctantly went. And then in retrospect, you know, having like, the Dream Academy got signed to Prince's Management, I saw him three times. 
I thought he was like the kind of blueprint really for Prince, like Mark Bowen. It was amazing. And it was amazing to see the kind of girl fans and the kind of streaking and, and he was a consummate performer. Yeah, it was an amazing experience in retrospect. But at the time there was a kind of snobbery amongst my fraternity of like proggers and he was just a mere, you know, little figure of um, entertainment. Yes. Well, I would imagine, you know, we look back at Bowie with great sort of like seriousness now and we study him in, in great detail. But at the time, he, he must have just been a bit of an, yes, people probably didn't take him that serious. he had, seriously, he had been into people like The Doors and Jimi Hendrix and sort of the heavier bands with, you know, Jeff Beckin. And then you had this Bowie-esque character or Ziggy, you know, character that I would imagine it just looked very frivolous. And my brother wouldn't even have a seven inch single in his you know record collection because it was not proper music it was too frivolous so i just i just think that bowie you know it must have a lot of fans must have just ignored him at the time thinking yeah this is just bubblegum pop you know and it's disposable and then it's like oh no actually it's a bit more than the sweet you know he, he's got a bit more substance to him yes yeah t- t- totally concur with what you're saying yeah yes so as the 70s progressed, and it's kind of a complex decade that had, you know, started with people like, you know, middle of the road and chirpy, chirpy, cheap, cheap and, and those things. Then punk came along. How did you navigate that kind of 76, 77 period? Well, well, that's quite funny, actually, because I was at Dartington Arts College then. I think I started in 76 and I became social sector in 77. And I learned to my cost that um, punk existed. I think I remember the Jubilee and everybody being kind of into punk at the time. I did have a friend called Bill who believed that he was a white witch and he turned me on to lots of people like kind of Ian Jury and we went to gigs to see the Damned, et cetera. And at the same time, I was going to Exeter University to see bands like Procol Harum and, and uh, Utopia with Todd Rundgren, et cetera. So it's quite a duality in my existence. <laughs> but I was like hoovering it all up. And I remember putting on this, at the time, you know, I think what was great for musicians and people for artists to develop was all, all these college tours. So, you know, for about 800 quid or a grand, you could book a band. So I remember that I booked a band, a band called O that probably no one ever will know or remember in the future. And they were a prog band, prog band. And I think it was on Jubilee night, they played in the canteen um, at Dartington. And there was like hardly anybody there because the whole kind of zeitgeist had changed into the kind of punk thing. But then I remember there, there was um, a friend of mine that um, got a, a single from OMD that I heard. And then I started to feel that there was some weird kind of strange electronic music that I didn't quite understand, but was kind of quite pleasant to listen to. And I think that became integral. I think when I was like with Nick in the early days, we were like interested in kind of OMD because it was that, um, you know, kind of electronic and obviously you've got the kind of human league, et cetera. And we kind of realized that there was a, a way to do it that wasn't necessarily four on the floor. So all the kind of artistic kind of experiences and madness that I had and Nick's kind of, prowess with having a band called The Act that I joined and we'd had a lot of fun going on little tours in Spain. It was a kind of cross-pollination of the, of the, 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 the best of the, um, both of them really. I think the idea of songs and harmony and electronics and experimentation and now I kind of fondly look back as I've just been endorsed by Roland to buy um, a Jupiter 6, a, a Jupiter X at a good price which is my favourite keyboard, the Jupiter 8 which is quite a lot. Um, I kind of think that, you know, it was almost in the 80s, this evolution as new synthesizers came out. It was every one or two years you'd buy a new one for about two grand. And then you'd go through all the presets and you'd just, you know, try and understand that new synthesizer. Whereas now on a daily basis, there's probably hundreds of bits of software that does a lot of this. But, yes. um, but in a way, I'm, I'm try, trying to remember lots of information, but there was a musician recently 
ruining over the fact that he only had something like um, a prophet and um, no, it was a Moog prodigy and one other synthesizer and he had to learn it inside out basically to be creative and he, he feels that people are kind of spoilt, um, you know, with the amount of software at the moment and obviously autotune, et cetera, but it's that, that kind of restricts the, the, the individual independent imagination. And that yes. Bemoaning the kind of the way that records sound now. And, Kind of, uh, I kind of agree with him. <laughs> <laughs> did you feel a little bit, not worried, but did you feel like you weren't going to, you know, when you realised what the musical zeitgeist was that you, and you were at that age, did it feel like, actually, I'm not quite part of the sort of this musical punk scene that... Um, yeah, well, it was, you know, in a way it was a double hammer because I was studying classical piano at the time. So it was like, you know, Debussy and Mozart and Bach and being incredibly focused on musicality and so you go to a sort of damned concert and you see the bass player and then like you know all pretty sort of pissed up etc and you think I'm not sure if this is the career that I want yes <laughs> yes it was strange I mean there must have been a lot of bands who were just about to say right we're here with the long hair and the you know flared denims and and sort of that kind of look that had been around for a few years like the you know when you look at the old grey whistle test and lots of hairy men doing guitar solos and they must have been and they were fine you know the eagles because they were already there but the bands who were just coming say right we're here and then suddenly the sex pistols and the dam and the clash appeared it must have been like oh we probably just gonna leave the room now aren't we because it's just this isn't what you want to listen to at all but um yes it's all about timing as i heard from various musicians so as we trucked on to the late 70s Thatcher gets in so then suddenly you know the political landscape changes and then the early 80s we have the you know the Falkland crisis Greenham Common the miners strike you know huge amount of unemployment so there's a lot of a lot of bands that I've interviewed have all all done I mean it's such a cliche isn't it but you know the job seekers alliance enterprise alliance schemes and then sort of being on the band you're being in a band as something to do and then you know that kind of narrative of often getting a single John Peel plays it John Peel session oh first album get the tour you know like the transit van goes around all the you know little art centers for their indie nights on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday. So what was it like when you rolled into the 80s? Well, that's when I moved up to London and um, it was kind of reluctantly, the third year of the course that I could do was like teacher training. And now that I live down like in Totnes in Devon, it's always quite strange because when I go along the railway, I see a parallel college that I should have gone to, which was Exmouth Roll College for the last year to do teacher's training. And I didn't choose that destiny. I decided to come to London, went to Trent Park. And I remember buying a, a Roland amp out of my grant and then just playing with lots of different bands. And it was like quite austere. You know, I was like playing with um, a jazz band at the Africa Centre and I played, I think, with a reggae band. And uh, there was an audition I went, I think, on one day that I went to about three different bands sort of playing electronic music, etc. So I sort of, you know, I, I just kind of um, gave myself chances to so the mathematics of like, you know, sort of quantity. Um, but I do remember heavily getting into the Smiths. The Smiths seemed to me like the new Beatles. And I remember mentioning it to Jeff Travis, who became like integral to our career in the future, um, that I used to just have their, head, their headphones on, the cassette, the Sandy Walkman, and, I, and my whole soundtrack was the Smiths. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because actually that was also my soundtrack for the 80s. And, and in a way, 83 to 87 was this kind of a glorious period, which I look at as indie pop, where suddenly all these bands, anybody who was roughly there, 
was just kind of like the June Bride, yeah, yeah, no, you know, there was the go-betweens, the, the Triffids. I mean, hundreds of bands just suddenly, far for five years, the Wolfhounds, just had this kind of wonderful chapter and they felt like it was just a glorious period, you know, for that five-year period. And then suddenly 87 comes along, the Smiths break up, then that world of you know, ecstasy and there's another musical scene that starts and it feels like all those bands are starting to go, yeah, we've we've kind of had our day, haven't we? And it's like, not completely, but there was definitely another wave of 16 to 18 year olds who wanted their soundtrack. And often that's when a lot of those bands are thinking, do you want the third album? Fourth? No, not really. Okay, bye. <laughs> so it's it's a cruel world, isn't it, really? So look... Um, uh- and I'd, I'd add to that the Cocteau Twins, you know, of course. Oh, God, yes, and everything but the girl. And and, yeah. I, and I seem to remember that being at a party in about 87 in Tufnell Park, and I experienced exactly what you're talking about. I was at the party and there was just drum beats and, and songs seemed to have disappeared and I couldn't quite understand what was going on, you know, that sound of the 808, etc. And that seemed to be the moment for me, that personal turning point of where... Where's the musicality? Where are the songs? Where you know? Where, where where's it gone? There's something happening, but I don't know if I relate to it. Yes. Well, I do remember one person I spoke to recently said he was dragged to a kind of one of these clubs, you know, like dance music, and someone shoved an ecstasy tablet in his in his mouth, and then he sort of like it all changed from there. It was like blimey, that was a bit shocking. But um, yes, I think that that kind of had a big impact on a lot of stuff. But anyway, but before that excitement, so how did your how did your sort of because you were with Nick and before Kate joined. So you were in this band called Act, weren't you, for a, for a few years? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, there was like, um, basically there was um, Mark Gilmore, Dave Gilmore's brother in it. And that felt like a bit of a turning point because, you know, I liked what Nick was doing with all the kind of the three-part harmonies. And then we had a drummer called Derek Adams. And um, we did some tours in Spain. The first time I think we went by van and we had to have a carne, which you need now, which is ironically enough, all these bureaucracy and documents, which is just mind-blowing thing. We've gone backwards so much with Brexit. Um, but we had some wonderful kind of, you know, bits of escape out of the kind of um, the austerity of um, Britain. And um, I think I remember if sort of knowing myself, sometimes I guess I can be garrulous and I can almost see myself in my, in my visual memory of being lying on the floor at Gilmore's after we've been rehearsing all day at night and probably boring everyone in the band stupid, except for Nick, who seemed to listen to my, my crazy ideas about how the future could be, yeah. So there was this weird kind of period where we kind of, um, I think Nick and I turned up to a gig and the bass player didn't turn up and I think the guitar player didn't turn up and then somehow it just sort of morphed into the two of us before Kate arrived. Yes, blimey. But we, we had like backing tracks that we put together with Dave Gilmore, which was great fun. Yeah. Blimey. My God, he he had the the, the minus touch for uh, Kate Bush as well, didn't he, a few years before that? Absolutely. So. And he had a Lindrum machine. I think there was only one in the country at the time besides him. And he had um, Peter Gable's Prophet, which I still remember playing on Please, Please Let Me Get What I Want, I think, our cover version. My God. So amazing. Yes, Peter Gabriel in the 80s. That was a, so when did you, or how did Kate sort of become part of the band? Uh, well, we, we, I, when I was in Southgate, I was on a permanent audition for various people. I remember having a girl called uh, Lucy, I think, came to play the harp and I had a sitarist. And every day I'd have different people in my living room kind of experimenting with different sounds. I think I was compensating for being at Dartington because I, 
we were all kind of spoiled brats in the middle of Devon, just being able to kind of spontaneously combust as dancers or musicians or artistically express ourselves. So to be kind of closeted in a small kind of, you know, room and sort of house with other people in London, in North London, it was like a bit of a shock, actually. I think it took years for me to realise that, you know, life wasn't like that. You weren't permanently at music college or art college, etc. Yeah. Yes. And how did you manage to survive? Did you... Were you still at college at that stage or were you sort of having uh, to sort of... No, no, no I, I, I remember I was actually, when we came to sign our contract, I had to kind of sort of dump a children's theatre company. I was like touring around the company, uh, the country, sort of playing keyboards and I think I ended up in Dundee or something. Yeah. <laughs> a bit of a hideous time, but yeah, yeah. But I, I, I survived, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And did you, when Kate appeared and, and the, there was the three of you, did it feel like, okay everything the planets have lined up this is good we've, we've got something yeah, here. yeah. i mean I, I love the sound of the oboe um and, and actually nick found um kate um but um it, you know i was totally into Ennio morricone and, and that and i felt that was another alignment as well that the mission was around at the time so on a sort of global level the the idea of the oboe or the anglais was in the ether i don't know if you remember the film the mission but it, oh it, was that with um it was integral to um you know, um, the soundtrack. Yes. I'm I just remember the actor, yes, exactly, the main actor. We should all know him, but the memories are fading. It, it wasn't Robert Nero, was it? No. Is it? Is it uh, yes, he's, I think he might be in it, but there's another key actor that, w- that we should... That we should you know. know. And he's very British, I believe, isn't he? And and does kind of emotional speeches, I believe. I can't yeah, well, never mind, never mind. Failure yeah. of the memory, yes, exactly. Forgive yeah. us. Yeah. It was one of those. I mean, yeah. I mean, at that stage... Probably Betty Blue hadn't come out, but did you ever get really into obsessed with the Betty Blue soundtrack? I just wondered if that was kind I of one. Loved of... It. I, I, yeah, I loved the Betty Blue soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Because that that had that sort of I don't know, was it a French composer that seemed to sort of take? Yes, a... it's Gabriel Yaret. Yeah, lovely composer. Yeah, he's done some really nice soundtracks as well. Incredible. Yes, I know. We we bought into Betty Blue with great, and then Diva, obviously. But um, yeah. so then. Once the band got, what was your memories of sort of then going into the studio for the first album? I mean, that's by then, this was like 84, 85, wasn't it? Yeah, well, we're, you know, we're, we've, we've done some, you know, had some good sort of um, run up or practice with uh, Dave of realising that the, the kind of technology and, you know, not always using um, conventional drums. Um, and, and also we were at Britannia Row and, and, the, and the first single seemed to take about nine months. We we're in and out of different studios. So it was almost like we were practicing for the evolution of the new technology. I still remember being down at Genetic Studios, which was Martin Russian studio, where he recorded the Human League, and there was also General Public down there. So I had this big Eureka sort of moment where there was a Synclavier, and I, I printed out some music from it, and I thought, this is the future, not realising, you know, now it's kind of, you know, de rigueur. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. Uh, but yeah, no, no, fantastic. fantastic. Um, you know, instruments and the Fairlight as well, the Fairlight and... Um, Sinclair. And then there was also a place in Paddington, I think, that Peter Gabriel had sponsored that was a shop where you, you'd be kind of looking shop, you know, through the shop window at the next bit of wonderful technology you can afford, you know, like the emulator and, and the Fairlight, I think, which was about 28 grand or something. Yes. Do you sort of feel like where did you fit in with it all? Because you weren't on an independent label and the mainstream was kind of very much that Trevor Horn production that had started with people like ABC and then Frankie. And then we had that 
kind of sound of you know Dire Straits and Tina Turner. You know, the charts were quite like wow. Harsh. When you say when we're not on an indie label, I mean initially we were with Jeff Travis and uh, had Rough Trade on on Blanco and Negro, so he was the one that kind of gave us our kind of break, and then they, I think he took us to Warner's America. Yes, so they oversaw the project, but on that first album, you know, I, I think that's my favourite really because there was just more room for artistic expression, and I think Joni Mitchell said you have the whole of your life to write your first album. And then normally people have a big problem with the second album because they haven't got much to say because they've been on tour promoting it. And I think that's what happens to us basically. Yes. As well, as well as the change of urban music, they call it, coming in in 87. You know, we were not ready. We're still pastoral kids, you know, with lots of utopian ideals. Because I did an interview with another guy who was in a duo called, is it Shelley Ann Orphan as well? Shelley they... Orphan. Did, 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 recently, because I actually looked him up recently and realised that he still lives in Bath and I think he had a Japanese singer but I remember like the, the, the lady that he used to work with I and mean, unfortunately she died of cancer a few years ago yes her name and yeah I, I kind of adored what I, I remember Jeff playing me their album with the strings I think Anne Dudley did the string arrangements with them. luckily yeah I got a bit of a feedback there um luckily there was an Italian <laughs> he had a very keen Italian fan he was also quite rich, who I think has financed his next album or financing it. So, um, yes, you can hear that interview on one of my shows. <laughs> he explained, oh, my God, he had a story which is just boggling, actually, one of the most the most horrendous stories I've ever heard. I will briefly tell you, but um, which is kind of fascinating to everyone listening. But he was driving to some recording studio at night and there'd been a car crash. I think he, the person, he he kind of um, had been killed and he'd sort of like had helped him out the car and he had blood all over his kind of clothes and stuff and then sort of eventually drove through the night and turned up at this kind of recording studio that they were working on with still this person's blood on them. And it was like, oh, my God, that is the most horrendous story I've ever heard in my life. So, um, yes, there you go. It sounds like a horror story. I remember that the singer was called Caroline and I think she went out with the drummer from The Cure as well. That's right. Pre-Raphaelite hair. Yes, and I think he, and there seemed to be a member in one of these bands called Boris, I remember. Anyway, God, look at us. Two two people trying to remember. Yeah, but anyway... Everything's good with him at the moment, and he's got he's got some some Italian helping him finance. Yeah, I might say hello to him actually because I left Bath, and sometimes I go out there because I find it almost my second spiritual home. There. Yeah, but he was saying he was saying that they were crucified on all angles. I just wondered how the Dream Academy. You know, how did you sort of get received from the music press and the public generally? Um, well, looking at it, I mean, you know, we I guess we were blessed that we had the the energy of the Warner's America I mean you know, Nick Reese reminded me really we had this video budget uh, the people that had um you know got the money together for um aha you know take on me you know we we're literally in the office and they were showing us what they'd done with that video so we we're at the right time really for MTV and 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 rather than kind of gigging up and down the roads like the cult who we met about a year later when we had our top seven hit in the states who looked like they'd been on the road and they, you know, sort of alcohol and all the kind of vices of the road had taken them over. <laughs> and I thought, we're, we're, we're kind of lucky, really. We've kind of escaped that. But, you know, but there's also the balance that maybe if we'd have done some more gigs, um, that would have been a good thing as well. But the American public were amazing. I mean, just to have a British accent, you know, and be... I remember a technician asking me to talk to his wife on the telephone just because I had a British accent. 
you know, everyone was really lovely, actually. Yeah. They love it, don't they? They absolutely love the British accent. Do you live near London? Yes, I do. We're trying to explain. Next to, the, next to the king, I should say. Yes. Yeah. And then yeah. they're, oh, well, that's nice. That's good. So, yes, how did you, how did Peter Buck appear on the album? I mean, with the track called The Party? Uh, I, I think that that, that that was Nick's idea and uh, and, and obviously like with Warner's, you know, and um, the kind of connection like with Warner's America, you know, it's quite easy really. I mean, R.E.M. at one point, this is dedicated to the one I love, we were thinking, God, did they nick that idea off us who we'd nicked it off the Mammoth and Papas. So there was a kind of integration going on there. <laughs> <laughs> I've always loved, there was a lovely story with Elvis Costello recently and someone pointed out that a, a young singer had just kind of really played Bailey sounded like he'd played, she had plagiarised one of his songs. And he said, well, I stole it from, you know, Bob Dylan, so I'm not that bothered. And it was like, oh, don't you want to sue them? It's like, come on, who cares? Yeah, yeah. No, I've got a couple of situations, major bands, though, I won't mention them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I felt the same. I just thought it's just not worth it, isn't it? You know, it's, life's too short. It is too short. So then, because obviously your love of the Smiths comes through with Please Please Me. Was that your idea? Uh, no, it was actually Nick's idea, but, um, you know, as I was a Smiths lover, you know, a very natural fit, yeah. Yes. So what was the atmosphere like with the band when you did your follow-up in 87? The atmosphere? Um, well, to be honest, uh, let's condense it. Uh, I've, I feel that we, we suffered from second album uh, sort of syndrome and it was too elongated and we didn't, have, for me personally, we didn't have Dave Gilmore at the helm, who was like, you know, the Floyd and, and the, the whole energy. And, you know, I guess that's why, you know, with Kate Bush, it worked so well. Um, I think we had um, Hugh Padgham, who wasn't a musician, and I think we missed that, having a musician at the helm. As, as you know, Nick used to say, Dave was great because he was like a butcher and say, get rid of that, get rid of that, you know, because we'd be building these story tower blocks of sound. And I think we needed someone that had that integral musicianship to oversee what we were doing. And as a result, I think it, you know, it, it, it lost its spiritual energy. I think like, you know, people talk about speaking the truth. I think we, we, we lost direction, I think, on the second album, yeah, personally. Yeah. Yes. And were you feeling as well, because you you know mentioned a bit earlier, the kind of musical sh landscape was sort of shifting, you know, and all the bands that I would, was, you know, had loved so much were sort of having that struggle with their second or third albums, thinking, you know, there's suddenly, you know, the, the dance scene with people like the Happy Mondays, Soup Dragons, you know, had sort I, of done. I, I, think, I think that was the major issue, I think, with the record companies. And then, you know, as Nick said again, you know, like Warner's, um, I think, were almost like United Artists, where several people had decided that the artists should have labels that would promote more than one album, you know, rather than here, here you go, like, is, is it selling or not, you're dropped. So we were given that, you know, blessing to do three albums, so they allowed us to go through that kind of, that morphing of, of the culture and society, but yeah, I'm sure a lot of bands suffered from that. Yes, it is. It is. I mean, it is kind of. Um, I mean, I was amazed, you know, sort of being obsessed with Bowie. Sort of realizing in the seventies, he he did one album a year, produced several people's, relocated, did world tours, and um, yes, and did and did a few films. And it's a bit like I'm not quite sure how how that happened, really. So, and neither yeah, did he. Yeah, he definitely his career de definitely didn't he? You know, when he's getting into drum and bass and all sorts of stuff, some sort of weird stuff, and it's almost. 
I don't know about you, you know, there's certain albums that, you know, sort of laid the, hit the golden years of his albums, to kind of use the pun, and then there were ones that were kind of a bit amorphous, and we tend to remember the great songs and don't probably remember all that struggle. But then also, you know, just as Jarvis Cocker said, that it took him 17 years to break through. I mean, Bowie was 10 years of like, being obscure, wasn't he, in the 60s before he actually got a break. Yes. So I guess like a writer or any other, right, you know, artists, directors, I guess musicians aren't, beyond that either that we have to kind of go to the clouds to kind of get back to the sunlight or whatever we have to experiment and and also there's the extrinsic things of society outside as you know young artists must know now you know with brexit and covid and potentially a third world war i mean wow you know life is happening around these artists you know it's not completely self-contained is it what your craft and, and no and myself as an artist i realize you know, the piano was always a kind of therapy that I would play from the age of 10 as a form of internal expression. And I think with artists, and sometimes maybe they get beyond themselves, but it's it's almost like it's in a little bubble, a little world that you're trying to create, an, an independent utopia that isn't subject to the external forces of culture and, and the, the real world, in inverted commas. Yes. No, it's interesting because, um, you know, the 80s did have a lot of struggle with, the, you know, as I mentioned earlier, with all the the political stuff that went on and then various kind of crash and explosions and financially, and then there was Chernobyl and there was always that in the early 80s, that threat of nuclear war. And then sort of sometimes thinking about what the 90s was like and it seemed slightly, it was quite casual in a way. We didn't, there wasn't that sense of, you know, it must have been issues and problems, but it didn't have those kind of, those things that I can remember. There wasn't artists sort of writing very angry songs about the political period. It was it was quite comfortable. I think people were just thinking this is, the, it was kind of happy times in a way. I know that's really simplistic, isn't it? But the no, nice... it's definitely kinder times in the Versailles commas, uh, commas from the cosmos. I think, I think so. The planet wasn't in such jeopardy, was it? No. So when, so as we sort of had 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 experienced the sort of the dance scene rise, and, and then we had the Seattle grunge scene, and then you think, right, third album, let's go, ninety one, John, the John Major years. What was it? What was it like then for you at that stage? I love the way you say the John Major years. That's so funny because I think of Spitting Image and the and the kind of grey peas. I think and yes. Face. Um, I, I immediately get a flashback to as doing our tour. Um, and setting off from Cratch, Dend in the Snow, and um, and kind of doing a small tour. I think we had Guy Pratt um, and Gary from the Pink Floyd on the rhythm section. And we set out in the snow and, and kind of ended up in Dun... Is it? No, it's Glasgow. I think King Tut's where Oasis was discovered, I think, on that. And I think we almost went over some little precipice in a van, you know, because it was all slippery on the way. But um, so that's why I remember our tour. And then I think we ended up doing our final gig in London and um, Dave came and played you know guitar and stuff so that was good fun um as for the album I think we were kind of rediscovering the kind of the joy of recording and the kind of the color of, of music and, and sounds um and in, in a shame it was it, it's a shame that we didn't go into a fourth album maybe three years later I think that would have been quite good because again I I think things were definitely opening out you know just um when you think of the bittersweet uh, symphony by the verb and stuff and the music, I think we'd have probably been in the right place again. Yes, you would have. I think, yes, absolutely. I think there was a few bands who went, God, we should have just hung in there just a little bit longer because 
you know, no one kind of realised that kind of Britpop, everyone loving guitars. And also the festival scene had had sort of come up quite, you know, quite big at that stage, the growth of festivals. Because I know Nick was a really, you know, he'd done his Isla White experience when he was very young. Did you get into the three-day festi scene? Um, yeah, um, yeah. Well, I was going to say very much. Maybe not three days, but I went to lots. You know, where I was living in, in Somerset, I'd obviously go to like Stonehenge, and I went to the Reading Festival. Um, yeah, I, and, and and we had a, a place called um, Johnson Hall that you'd have like a Hendrix's bass player that played there, and a, a German band that were called Nectar um, that were very psychedelic. So, you know, I definitely had my input of um, kind of bits of festival and um, you know, not as I. Iconic as the other white, but um, yeah, definitely understood it. Yeah. Yes. So then, when it came to that moment, when you were recording the third album, did you all know that that was probably going to be the last time, the last kind of experience in the studio with the band? Uh, did we know? I think I think it was almost like we don't know the the, the date that we leave this world. Um, you know, it's a gradual process, but it. Uh, What can I say about that? Um, it, it it wasn't like we had, I, I personally didn't think that we had a blow away single. And also the, the zeitgeist wasn't necessarily in our favour because I think we we went to India and we did a cover of a John Lennon song, Love. And that was absolutely wonderful. We had three weeks, which was incredibly, you know, wonderful period to make a video and very spoiled. And that, and that was really joyous. But then the radio, because there was uh, the, the Iraq war, I think, going on, basically banned things to do with love or anything that was sort of contradictory to the government policy of like, let's go and bomb them now. (laughs) So we, we weren't in alignment with the government. Let's say, let's say that. Yes. Blimey. Yeah. So that was, you couldn't believe, I know there was once a, a boat, a single that came out, you know, about being, but being, I don't know, I can't remember what it was. It was something like being at sea in a low leaky boat. And I think that was when the, when you had the Falkland crisis and they thought, well, we can't have anything to do with leaky boats kind of on the radio. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's pretty mind blowing, isn't it? It's pretty mind blowing. Yeah. It's a bit like, that, oh, that felt very sad at the time to think it, you know, I mean, Lennon's, you know, original version of Love is absolutely beautiful. And I think we gave it a bit of justice and there's a video out there, I don't know if you've ever seen it, of our little messing about in India, but I think, I think we did a bit of justice to his absolutely beautiful song, you know, and the world vision utopian. Yeah. Yes. So then when you, when you all, did you all just have a moment you sat down and said, this is the end to quote Jim Morrison? Um, well, I, it was also financial because, um, you know, having financial responsibility of a mortgage and stuff like that. So I was like thinking, well, what's going to happen next? And um, that's when I kind of got together with Rachel Ayres, Kevin Ayres' daughter. I don't know if you knew Kevin Ayres from... Oh, yes. ...and Mike Oldfield, et cetera. So then I started putting my own project together and Kate hadn't really committed herself to anything particular. And um, things were just, things were drifting. But as a musician, just like like other people in the world, you have to earn a living. So it's like, where's the money coming from? Yes, I know. It's it's one of those classic. So then, have you had a, a life still in music, doing, you know, bits and pieces? Very much, yeah, very much. God. So what happened? So you work with, did you say Kevin Ayers' daughter? Yeah, Rachel Ayers, yeah. Rachel. And what project was that? That was, um, there was a, there's a song out there called England's Dreaming, which is all about the political situation, actually, anti-Thatcher, that I put out there, so you can check it out. And also another one called The Colour of Love, 
um, which was directed by the Raincoats lady. I forgot. You probably know the Raincoats one. Yeah. God. So there was that, and um, no, there's been endless product pro uh, sort of projects since then. I've been working with a guy called Thomas Kerber in Poland because I lived in Poland. I moved there in two thousands because I'd had enough of pop idol. I thought if this country is coming to that, then you know, I, why do I want to even be in England? And um, yeah, I've made some really sort of eclectic stuff, and I'm I'm doing a new project now. You know, when I can see that you're being logical about the decades, just like myself, so I don't want to disrupt your chronology. <laughs> if you want me to go onto it, it's funny you're doing it chronologically because I've just been working on a a project celebrating Dartington College of Arts, which is another story about, you know, basically it was a, a rich heiress that bought the place in 1925 with a husband to escape the pandemic and war a hundred years ago. So I'm doing a spatial product project to celebrate the centenary in 2025 because we've just had a pandemic and we're on the verge of another war. So I'm very interested in the idea of communicating about utopia, ideals, community, and all the things that I think we all need to when, when there's such a disarray. Uh, yes. What... Longer conversation. I know. Yes, living in community was was quite the thing in the sixties and seventies. I sort of remember it in in the eighties. I think that was driven slightly by a certain lack of money and poverty, but but also a shared value of sort of um, yes, being for something yeah. while being yeah. against now, us. Now it's, just, now it's just poverty, isn't it? <laughs> Forget about the community. <laughs> It's just like, yeah, I know, God, this is, my mum said something the other day, she said, I might do some baking and put it in the freezer because, yeah, the electricity will be so much more expensive, you know, after the... Uh, after it, it, it's medieval, isn't it? The whole thing that's going on. It's just it's, and quite feudal as well, actually, yeah. Yes, I think it will be. So, yeah, so just briefly, the colour of money, they, you... Colour of, color of love. Colour of, color of money, right. Colour of love, the colour of money is a film, I think, but I certainly wouldn't do that. Color of money, no, that wouldn't be no. You know. So then, yeah. So just briefly, what was your nineties? You mentioned Rachel and doing England's Dreaming. What else happened? Uh, lots of study. Um, I, I I went to I was at Goldsmiths University, and then I studied film at Westminster University, and then I completed the doctorate as well. So I was always studying, playing music, new technology and left London, I think, in 1997. And then Dario G, to, to our good fortune, sampled Life in Northern Town, which I think sold two million records. Blimey. Blimey. Luck. Blimey. That was a bit like that, wasn't it? I did an interview with Dunstan Bruce when they from Chumbawamba, and it was like, they were so like, thank God for tub thumping. We, we, we don't have to go and work on, I don't Down know. Yeah, yeah. yeah or, or a warehouse for Amazon somewhere. We we can vaguely retire to a little, you know, flat somewhere and just about survive if we're sensible and eat lots of TVP. So that would be good. So um yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah. So then so after the 90s, now we're into the new labor years, Team Tony. What happens in the next decade, the the um the O years? Well, that's when I was saying that I decided to uh, go to Poland. I lived there for about six years and I was doing, you know, doing a lot of music in Krakow, you know, like theatre and uh, recording with this guy, uh, Kukush, Thomas Kapoga, who played with Peter Gabriel and um, what's his name, Nigel Kennedy. So I did a project called um, Another Son. And, um, and I also had a band called Melt 21 as well. So I was uh, imagining that there was still a potential for interacting with the music business when I kind of got back to the UK, not realizing that it really basically dissolved 
in essence, because of the internet and downloading, you know, which again is another cultural external that artists, musicians, and such probably weren't prepared for. No, absolutely. And then occasionally, do you know, do the the members of Dream Academy, do you occasionally have the odd concert together just for old time's sake? Um, well, Nick organised a concert in Japan, but didn't tell me, which was a little bit shocking. <laughs> and um, I was, uh, I did a gig in, what is it, Youth um, Space Mountain Festival, about 2017. And, and, that, and that, that was very kind of them to me play. And then, then I ended up doing some like, you know, sort of smaller gigs down here and I played in Croatia as well. And um, I've, you know, I've seen Nick in the last three months or whatever, a few times and, and said, you know, basically life doesn't go on forever and maybe we can make our best album now, but who knows if that's going to happen. Yes, because Kate still plays music, doesn't she? I think she's doing some like folky stuff and I think she might have done a bit of film music. I haven't seen her appear on Facebook much recently, but um, I think she's got a daughter that's left, you know, gone to university, etc. Yes. So are you still sort of have that sort of not dream, but sort of idea that you might sort of one day think, let's just do one more, one more for the road? Um, well, I think Nick's probably uh, hedging his bets um, uh, of what, you know, where, where the money's coming from, because I think he's got like expenses with the studio and stuff. And it, and it's that kind of time in life. I was like reading some philosophical thing on on the internet today. I don't know why I get philosophy sort of thrust on me, um, but um, you know, it's just talking about uh, as you have less years left, then you know you should be kinder to other people, and you maybe should be a bit more decisive how you want to use your life. And I guess Nick, I think he left. School, I don't know, when he's 14 or 15, and he didn't go the conventional route of education like I did. So I think in some ways that he's been picking up on it, he's been learning the piano and German. And, um, you know, maybe maybe he's done his innings, you know, of like being on the road, etc. Because it is a sacrifice when I see these lots of these bands, you know, like physically and mentally. I mean, there's a wonderful documentary by Al Hard, trying to get Nick to watch. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, Aha the movie. I mean, that is a mind-blowingly brilliant documentary of what it's like to be in a band. You realise that, you know, they've got this naturally charismatic, you know, wonderful-looking singer, but the other two are really talented and they end up doing film music, they split up, they have crisis, etc. And then I think one of them has a heart condition towards the end and they realise that we're brothers and we'll do this gig and we'll keep it together. So there's a splitting up, the getting together. Their first record, like just like Bowie, you think, First album, I think, um, sold 11 million. Which yes. Is which is it just was, mind blowing. Mind blowing. It is mind blowing. I mean, those, those record sales are incredible. No, I didn't know there was a film on Aha. Yeah, and yeah, I, 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 I really, high, I saw it on Sky Arts and I just thought, wow, this is amazing. It's, you know, just really interesting because you just think of Take On Me and that's it, don't you? But not the rest of it. Yeah. I did hear an acoustic version of that recently, and it, it, it was a bit like when I listened to a Joni Mitchell album a few decades ago now, where she'd redone her uh, material from the 70s, and it was much more melancholic and much sadder. It felt very heavy. and um, that, that singer has this inherent sort of sadness, and I think it's the other two guys that write a lot of the, the songs, but he just has this kind of charisma of being like some kind of vulnerable bird or something. You, you know, that we had rabbit in the spotlights on all these kind of cliches and somehow he's there and he's got this gift. And it's, it's, 
yeah, it's it's really it's it's a great great documentary. Yes, well, no, I will check that. I didn't even know that exists. I'd, I've seen as many as I can. So there you go. I mean, if there was anything that you could have told your sixteen-year-old self stars now, is there something you would have just whispered in their ear and said, "Look, I would, I would definitely do this." Uh, what or not? Um, what was that? Um, that? That's a really difficult question, actually, because I'm going. You know, I'm going through a sort of a circumstance now, like with a, a situation and I realized that you either are forthright and you tell the truth or you compromise your ideals and I and I and I think you know all the people that I respect whether it's Jenny Mitchell or you know philosophers etc because that the establishment that I went to is pretty mind-blowing the Dartington College of Arts or Dartington Hall you know I had Huxley I had Bertrand Russell Ravi Shankar you know, just amazing thinkers. There's a guy called Satish Kumar that worked, walked 8,000 miles to get Bertrand Russell out of prison and to pr protest about the caste system in India. You know, 8,000 miles without a passport, without any food, with a fellow. He just decided that's what I'm going to do. And I just thought, uh, those are the people that I respect. And I think, you know, as we're all on a deathbed, bed, I think, is it Marcus Aurelius is talking about that your whole life is to have that good thought when you die? So I, I, I haven't, I don't think I've be wittingly betrayed anybody or been dishonourable or kind of, you know, been dishonourable. So I, I don't know, you know, I guess you deal with what the cards that you've decided to choose from the pack. I, mm. I, I almost want to ask you the same question. Get <laughs> a small answer. Well, I suppose, um, I suppose sometimes it's to have that conversation which you feel just to know, I suppose it's it's often around the world of money, isn't it? Actually, and and sort of, and what you're really signing up to, and not just assume that everyone's having a a good feeling that we're all going to act honourably at the end of it. You know, just in case, it's like what happens when things start to get a little bit difficult, and you if you haven't had that conversation, then you don't really know. The, the the parameters or the structure you know things can get a bit odd and um, people don't always act as you expect so I think I think yeah there's a there was a certain hippie naivety or new agey naivety that I had which I would definitely have um lose I have lost <laughs> um in later life you know because it's just like no I I suppose that sense of naivety that you know just thinking everybody's going to do the nice thing if they if they're in a situation and they can you know i've met people who wouldn't do the nice thing they would they both would like to stab you and quite get a kick off it as well so protecting oneself from those situations yeah would be a lot better so um yeah i, I think that's you know, i think that's very very good it's weird actually because my sister had a brain tumor and and died when she was 50 and she was talking about that she was had some you know like kind of alternative therapy and it was like having this kind of not force feel but a cloak that could protect you so you're absolutely right it's like maybe the development of that is is something and i and i think maybe that's parental responsibility or lack of it that probably both yourself and my and myself didn't have totally as well as being into the era that was was more open planned and more visionary i mean i've seen documentaries about prog rock etc and they were saying in the 60s if we saw what happened we'd be so disappointed you know we went to the moon we did all these amazing things and we imagined the future was going to be much more interesting and much 
kinder in a way, you know, more evolved and actually they're kind of shocked. So um, I guess I represent the, uh, your analysis of yourself and wonder if it's, if, if it's the environment that you're brought up in because you're brought up in a more optimistic kind of more embracing communal environment and, and the world seems to have become a bit harder and um, yes. selfish. And I always, when I think of selfies, I always think of the word selfish, selfishies. You know, it's got the word, most of it's in there already. Yes, this is true. Yeah, I think, um, I suppose a few years, decades ago, I suppose we were having to get our kind of wheels sorted out and and talking to our, our chap, who was just a nice guy, nicest guy I've ever met, really. He seemed so relaxed and casual about it. But he said that in that business of, of what he do, it does, he said that he's never... Every, you know, he's seen the worst in anybody. If they if they realise that legally they could keep all the money, even though it's been verbally said, oh no, you you know, I would split it. They never do, and I think it's that sense of like, oh right. So you can still be light and optimistic, but just not have that naivety. I think that's the thing, because um, yeah, you'll get disappointed if you if you sort yeah. of go with it too long so um i think that that sense of it but i do like to feel still optimistic about life even though um it can sometimes be a bit tricky it's so funny you're talking about optimism i mean this is like synchronicity i i happen to notice and i'm not always looking at facebook and it was philosophy again and someone was going about oh optimists build airplanes and pessimists build parachutes and then there was a whole conversation because life cannot be that simple because there's an optimism to believe your parachute's going to work as well. You know, they, they were trying to sum it up. You know? <laughs> yes, it's interesting. But look, well, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. If you want, I can always send you the link and um, you can always use it or not use it. I don't know. And it, it's fine, but it's, it's good. Been, it's been a, David, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you and unearth the, the deep recesses of my mind memory and lack of memory yes well it's all there it's all there but um yes that's that's all good and um like you said yeah don't don't do i i show on the subject of alternative medicine which i got kind of into when i was younger um but that the lead singer of that band shelly ann orphan i was talking to the guy and he said that she spent too many years kind of doing alternative stuff so when she went to the doctors eventually it was like actually it's too late now but you kind of should have come to us a bit earlier that, you know, so. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I'd be the first not to say alternative me uh, medicine is a, a substitute for, you know, reality. Yeah, but but on a psychological level, if if there are means where you can kind of protect yourself, you know, whether it's playing the piano or being theatrical or expressing yourself rather than popping pills that have been prescribed. Yes. Just, uh, yes. Go for good. Uh, away ye anti-vaxxers <laughs> <laughs> I know <laughs> on that bombshell look thank you ever so much look take care and have a lovely afternoon alright take care bye take care bye bye and that dear listener just in case you didn't know it's the end of the interview and a shame but fantastic all the same thank you ever so much Gilbert Gabriel from the Dream Academy for giving me the time for that interview. This has been the C86 Show. David Easter, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show, you'll find it. Also, keep it positive, keep it groovy, keep it nice. And all these interviews have been archived, aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Stream. Anyway, have a great week, stay safe. <laughs>